Hey there, podcast listener. Welcome to Eat Half, Walk Double. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. This show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Sarah Saladay and Rye Fanestock are two of the original members of Asadata Grazing. They are also the creators and directors of the Exeter Trail Race. These two longtime friends join the show as we chat about their early racing with AR, what they're both up to now, their greatest collective racing success, and all of the details of the Exeter Trail Race you never knew, like why they started the race and need to know. They're really fun guests. So here they are. Sarah Saladay and Rye Fanestock. Hey, Sarah and Rye, welcome to the show. Thanks for Hi, having nice us. Here. Hey, we've got the Exeter Trail Race coming up um, on um, Saturday, June 18th, and I want to spend some time obviously talking about that. Um, you two, uh, as, as race directors uh, for that event, uh, obviously uh, know the event uh, better than anyone else and uh, want to spend some time doing that. But um, I kind of think that this, uh, this show is a good opportunity for the listener to uh, maybe learn a little bit more about the two of you, um, um, you know, a little bit about your uh, collective history and uh, a lot about your individual uh, histories, uh, you know, who you are and, and, and what you do. But if you don't mind, uh, I, I was going through some, some old photos, uh, old, they're probably 10, 11, 12 years old now. That seems old to me now, but I was going through some photos from about a decade ago and uh, stumbled across uh, some photos of us uh, at the Frigid Infliction, <laughs> the winter adventure race in Vermont that, that we did years ago. And then I was trying to remember exactly when the two of you became members of Acidotic Racing, because my recollection is that you two are two of the original members of Acidotic Racing. Sarah, what help, help me refresh my memory. When, how did that, how did that all come about? How did we, how did we, how did we, how did we meet each other? Um, so right. Rye, I'll have to say exactly how I reach out to you, but my recollection is that was a winter that uh, Ryan and I had been just hanging out and riding bikes all through the fall and trail running. And um, he had done ultras before and I was just getting into trail running and we were just bored. <laughs> and we thought we'd do some silly races. And he was like, hey, do you want to do this adventure race with me? I was like, oh, well, what's an adventure race? Um, and of course, winter is definitely my discipline. I'm a big skier, uh, have a lot of skills in that area. And I was like, okay, well, frigid infliction sounds pretty fun. Okay. And then he was like, well, there's, there's this team that's local, acidotic racing. Um, and Ryle have to, Ryle have to pick it up there because I can't yeah, quite remember. I, I just found you, I was starting to race. That's what happened. I was starting to race and uh, back then, like the ultras were just getting started, but kind of adventure racing was much more popular than it currently is, at least to, to, my, to my knowledge. I don't really follow the scene a ton anymore, but it seemed like it's died off 
a little bit compared to what it was. Um, and so uh, we were kind of always been multi-sport athletes and um, that was kind of the direction that I was interested in going. And I just did, I think I was just like a Google search back in the day and you had acidotic as a website and I emailed you. And uh, then the, the thing that I remember that I find kind of funny these days, but made a ton of sense there was that you made us try out. You, uh, <laughs> you took us all over to Bear Brook. Yeah, we, we went to Bear Brook. Weekend or a weekend day. I don't remember uh, that. Doing some, doing some, uh, <laughs> some, some work over there. Yeah, uh, we were doing you know, navigation. We had compasses yeah, out. We we're like, I remember tromping on snowshoes through the Bear Brook like bog. Essentially, that was yeah. frozen. I remember this very clearly. I yeah. guess I was trying to make sure you guys were legit. Yeah. Well, again, looking back, just some some dude with an email uh, is certainly uh, yeah a little a little suspect. Uh, but yeah, that that was that was the that was the reason, and that was the that was the thing. It was just trying to get in touch with the community. And, you know, I'm trying to think 2007, it, it really always amazes me how far we've come, how fast as far as the internet and technology. True. And even when I think back to then, like it was just harder to find things a little bit. And um, so the internet wasn't quite as big a place. And uh, you were like that search for community. That was what was there at the time. And that's what we, that's what we hooked up to. And you got, you certainly uh, seemed like you knew what you were talking about. And then we went and did the frigid and that was a wonderful experience. That was one of the still marks especially yeah. those first couple of years market is one of the best races I've ever run that the first two years, the snow was so deep and the conditions were so good. Yeah. Can you, uh, can you, for the, for the, maybe for the listener, that's, uh, that's not familiar with the, with the frigid infliction or with adventure racing, but, but particularly winter adventure racing, which is sort of a sub, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a subspecialty of adventure racing, right. Um, can, 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 can either one or, or both of you talk a little bit about what, like what was the frigid infliction? What, like, how was the event put together? What, what were the disciplines? Uh, you know, what, what was it? Uh, so the frigid infliction takes place in Bolton Valley, Vermont, which is like snow Mecca. If you've never been there, um, March just gets these dumps of snow and there's miles and miles of trails, um, at Bolton Valley, both backcountry trails and Nordic ski trails that all also connect into their Alpine ski area. Um, so it's just a really amazing spot to host something like an adventure race where there's navigation and multiple disciplines. So um, the disciplines include uh, cross-country, backcountry skiing. So you could be on these Nordic trails or you could be just in the woods on these little single tracks, sending you over some mountain somewhere on a pair of skis and hoping you don't die on the way down. Um, <laughs> I remember Rye was riding some very skinny skis that first year with the no metal year. edges. It was a little harrowing, actually, I recall. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the issue about that, since it will just a slight digression, the uh, one of the challenges of the winter ones that you don't think about is the actual, the transitions. Some of the transitions were indoors, um, but the, some of the first transitions, especially I remember being at like five in the morning and at dark and we like ran just a short distance, maybe quarter mile or something up to the skis or, or something to that extent. And uh, the fingers going numb and all that sort of stuff. Cause my boots, like I did, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking, I didn't know any of that stuff back then. So it was just standard gear and I'm trying to lace up, <laughs> lace up stuff with frozen fingers and, good and whatnot. But that's, it's just a good example of one of the small minutia that makes it uh, so much more unique than, or. And yeah, it's different. 
yeah, and yeah. Different from, from summer different. racing. So mm -hmm. when you when you say navigation, Sarah, you're like you're talking about like orienteering, like maps yeah, so you do, and you're trying to find checkpoints or yeah, of you they basically give you two maps. They give you a map with the ski trails, and then they give you a topo, and then they just give you a bunch of points like not on a map. <laughs> and you have to put the points on the map and then figure out how that topo relates to the ski trails if you want to do any of the ski trails instead of just bushwhacking. Um, so in addition to skiing, there's also snowshoeing. Um, and then as Rye mentioned, there's, there's post holing. So you're potentially running through the woods up in snow up to your hip. I actually remember following you, Chris, because I could not even make the post holes. My legs are so short. I was like following Chris through the woods, like and going all we up. Could see, like, all we could see of Sarah was just the top of her head. Right. Like, just bobbing <laughs> she along. was following in the trench, right? That yeah, that we were that we were breaking. I do remember that that post hole section. That was uh, really that was quite extraordinary. And to your point. Uh, Bolton Valley does get hammered with snow. And I believe that year there was a lot of snow yeah. Uh, yeah. in the woods. Um, you know, one, what, one thing that I remember about that, I believe it was that year, um, was the Tyrolean Traverse. I, oh, yeah. I believe, I believe the Tyrolean was that year, although it could have been the, the no, following year. No, there's, I think been, it was both years. They okay. have it most years. Um, recently they had switched from a Tyrolean to a high ropes course, um, which they installed at Bolton Valley and make available now in the winter. Um, so in later years that I did it, um, they added that, but the Tyrolean Traverse, you had to carry one year, you had to strap your skis to your backpack and then pull yourself in a harness across a ravine on a rope to get to the other side, slightly uphill from the side that you started on. Um, now, you, and, <laughs> you, 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 you two, uh, don't even interrupt, but you, you, you two are climbers, right? So, yeah. so this, this idea of being in a climbing harness and, and being, you know, up in the air is not that big of a deal to you two. Now, maybe you don't do Tyrolean traverse, traverses all the time, but, but you're, 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 you were both pretty comfortable being in the air and, and, and having climbing stuff on. Uh, me, on the other hand, I was terrified of heights and that I, I literally that 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 discipline created a tremendous amount of anxiety for me all day. And as a as a noob, um, <laughs> uh, I didn't realize that you should have taken your pack off and yeah. and and carabinered your pack to the line behind you and pull yeah. your pack along. I had my pack on we and when too. I got to the bottom of the traverse and needed to start climbing up the other way, my back went into such horrific spasm uh, and my arms were so flamed out that I literally got, I think I was like 10 or 15 feet from the other side. And I remember the two of you were already over there, fresh as a daisy, just ready to go, waiting for me. And I, I got to a point where I, I, I think I said out loud, I can't do this. Now they, now they, right. The, 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 um, the support people were there to kind of, you know, put a hook on you and, and pull you the rest of the way, but there was a time penalty associated with that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you, but I remember the two of you really encouraging me, Chris, you can do it. <laughs> you don't want to take a time penalty. You can do it. And you, and to your credit, you both coached me uh, through it. And I was able to somehow muster the strength to pull myself back up uh, that Tyrolean traverse. Um, no, I'll never, never forget that. Uh, yeah, I think uh, subsequently in the la the next following year too, they also made it a little more even, if I recall. Like yeah. 
they it was maybe their first year setting up that traverse too because it was definitely <laughs> angled in the wrong way yeah. um, so but yeah i rem i do distinctly remember seeing almost every kind of pretty much everybody nobody you know you never even as climbers so i can only think of like one reason to do a trivolian traverse and it's to get to the cliff across a river or something and we've <laughs> right. done that once um but yeah, every but I we at least had you know some some conceptual knowledge, whereas most everybody I remember being like ooh a lot of like ooh oh because right. everybody's it's a race too you know and then you watch everybody line up and go like sluggish and like sag in the middle and you're just like the complete antithesis of what you, what everybody's supposed to be doing out there. Although I can't remember if it was that year or the the second year that I did it when we got to the other side, they're like, okay, you just run down the road and then your skis are there. And I just, that relief, like, oh, thank God I get to put on skis. No more of this post holing business, Tyrolean traverses. So, but to, yep, to your, to your earlier point, um, some of the, some of the backcountry ski sections were gnarly. And like, like Rye, I didn't have metal edges. I had just plain old Nordic skis thinking we were going to be skiing on Nordic trails. Well, there was really no such Nordic trails to be found. I mean, there were Nordic trails there, but we weren't skiing on them. We literally yeah. were, we were breaking trail on skis. And I have zero experience backcountry skiing. That's not my thing. I'm a pretty good, I'm a, I'm an adequate Nordic skier. I am not an Alpine skier and I am not a backcountry skier either. So that, that I remember that discipline was a, was a challenge as well, but what an incredibly, what an incredibly unique, um, event. Um, you, you, you guys went on to do some summer adventure races as well, right? After, after frigid infliction or was, was the frigid infliction, the only winter, the only adventure race that you guys did? Yeah, I, I think I pretty much started kind of doing more ultras and then then the whole death race Vermont scene went heavy for me and, and Sarah was nice enough to, to spend a lot of time up there with me for the next kind of two seasons. Um, so I think that was pretty much directly after it. I, I did adventure races in that in that regard, but not your traditional yeah sort of adventure races got it and uh, and the two of you um i mean if i think of the the branches of the acidotic racing tree um names or some names escape me but jay myers austin stonebreaker mm -hmm. um yeah. those two guys mike. Are, are mike saladay mike uh sarah's mm -hmm. husband part of that tree who who am i missing who am I missing as part of the Rye and Sarah wing yeah, of acidotic racing? Did I did I kind of hit um, the highlights? That was pretty much Th most of them. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty much the highlights. And then my friend Michelle Day, um, right. before she moved to England, did some races with us. She helped crew Rye and Mike um, one year for the death race. Yeah, that's right. We, we had a lot of um, extraneous kind of hanger, not hangers on, but you know, just friends coming and yeah. supporting us. But those were probably the main uh, people yeah. who were active as far as racing with us. Got it. Certainly. Got it. So, um, well, um, let, let's talk a little bit about um, who the two of you are uh, individually, uh, both both personally and and professionally. Um, and then um, I, I want I, I want I want you to I want you guys to tell the, the, the collective story that that you that you have that I know that you both love to tell that you don't get a chance to, to tell very much. <laughs> but um, but Sarah, let's let's start with you. Um, uh, tell, tell the listener a little bit more about, about who you are personally and, and, and what you do professionally. Um, so this is sort of a, an interesting 
piece of knowledge that I just discovered about myself. There's a new book called Sparked. Um, and you can look up your sparkotype. So my sparkotype, as I recently discovered, yeah, I thought you'd like that, right? <laughs> nice, yeah. Um, is the essentialist. So basically, I'm the kind of person who takes all of like the filtering in information and like sorts it out into like how to make things happen, um, which perfectly explains the relationship that Ryan and I sort of have. Um, um, and why I enjoyed crewing him for races, but never wanted to run a hundred miles myself or perform in a death race. Um, but anyway, uh, it also was funny when I discovered this because I was thinking about my business and how maybe I've chosen the wrong business, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, okay. Interesting. So, uh, my business is called, uh, Growing Home and it's essentially a parent coaching and, uh, education consultant business. Um, my, my belief is that, uh, families, when they spend time in nature together, they can find joy, harmony, joy and harmony, and that can bring harmony to their larger community and peace to their world. Um, when we really observe children and see what their needs are, then we can respect them and understand them and bring their joy forward. Um, and so that, like, and I think that that desire in me comes from both my experience as a camp counselor, as well as my um, much newer experience learning more and more about Montessori education. Um, and then you tie that with my interest in natural resources and natural sciences and my strong desire to observe nature. It makes it really easy to observe children. And when you kind of put all that together, it, it really, I really want to share that with people because I think it's really important. Um, when we observe nature, we can better understand children. And when we better understand children, everybody is more harmonious. Um, and because when you're not fighting all the time, you can move on to other things. Um, my passion is really for adolescent children. Um, so hopefully I'll be back to teaching adolescents at some point. But Growing Home sort of grew out of the pandemic, actually. Um, I sort of saw lots of parents struggling online and in my community, and I wanted to offer something that would build them up and provide support services for them. Um, what's interesting, though, is it's hard to find people who need you, um, and it's hard to reach the people who could best use your services and still get paid for it. So it's this strange double-edged sword that I've been um, trying to work through the last couple of years. Um, and so I wouldn't say business is booming, um, but uh, I'm looking at other avenues in trying to offer trainings for groups of adults that work with children to kind of give them some of that. So I'm doing a training um, for the Littleton Parks and Rec Department coming up and they have their summer counselors. And so I'm going to be providing information about how to observe children and how to teach children how to observe the environment. Um, and then knowing which kinds of activities are good for children at, when you see like, oh, they're really active, like, okay, so offer this set versus, you know, everybody kind of seems like they just wanna like chat and enjoy and listen to the world. Then you have these activities that'll, that'll meet their needs and kind of working with these 16 and 17 year olds um, as a good foundation for how to kind of be with children in, in nature. Um, so that's yeah, kind of the, the turn that my business is taking. Um, and 
it's sort of one of these things where if I had a lot more time and effort and energy, I, it might have it might move forward more quickly. Um, but one of the other primary things that I do right now is I homeschool my own children, um, which I've been finding an incredible amount of joy in. Um, sometime around the time my son Fenton was two, it was summertime because I'm a teacher and I was off. And I said to Mike over dinner, God, how do stay-at-home moms do it? I could never do that. Here I am, four and a half years later. Um, and I, you know, most days I really love it. I, I love teaching and I love teaching the people that belong to me. Um, you know, the people who who I want to, to mirror my own uh, morals and values. And so it's really joyful. Um, and we're really, uh, Fenton, because he's six now, we're really collaborative about what we do. Uh, currently we're finishing a study on honeybees which he kind of got interested in somehow. And we went to the local farm and they gave us a honey frame and we extracted honey and we've read 20 books about bees and um, we're going to make wax candles and the whole, the whole bit. He did a STEM project making this like three dimensional honeycomb structure. Um, so yeah, really, really cool stuff um, that you can't do with 25 children you can do with your own two children. Um, even when one of them is two and a half and, uh, you know, <laughs> thwarts you at every turn. <laughs> well, the, the pictures and videos that you post are, uh, are super cute uh, of, your, of your kids doing these, these, these really cool and interesting things in nature. Um, uh, just a quick follow-up question that comes to mind is this, this I, sort of concept, and I'll, I'm going to coin an expression, this nature facilitated learning, <clears throat> somewhat novel and unique here in the United States where, where most children are taught in, you know, brick and mortar buildings. Um, it, but yet <clears throat> uh, this nature facilitated learning is, I mean, it's, it's not uncommon in other parts of the world. Uh, I would, I, I think I would sort of what comes to mind is Europe. Um, I'm, did you draw any inspiration from Hard to believe that you might have drawn any inspiration from from any stateside, uh, uh, you know, educational uh, 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 approaches. But did you draw any inspiration from other parts of the world when it when it when it came to this 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 sort of outdoor learning concept? Well, my mom's an environmental educator. Um, she worked in conservation education at Fish and Game for my whole life. Um, she was one of the first in female environmental educators to ever graduate from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and so. Um, I never really imagined that that would be what I was doing. I sort of like got a natural resources science degree. And then I did some curriculum development on citizen science at a global scale, um, which may have been the other major influences. I had a chance when I was working at UNH, um, I was working with the GLOBE program, which is an international citizen science program for uh, educators and students. And so students from over a hundred different countries participate in the collection of data for scientists and used by themselves and scientists to understand their world. Um, and everything from the carbon cycle, uh, atmospheric studies, to sort of just like local leaf changes, um, you know. And so I had a chance to see how powerful children can be when it comes to their understanding of the environment and how they can change their own community when they do projects that are important to them. Um, so I think like 
trying to offer that on some sort of small scale and, and support families and being outside more would give everybody a better opportunity. Um, but I think those th two things together are sort of like what, what got me to this point in particular. I think it's a I think it's a perfectly perfectly positioned business for the time that we live in, right? Where, um, where you know the, uh, the appreciation for the planet and the conservation of the planet is so incredibly important. Um, Rye, uh, yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about 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 you. Uh, who are you personally and professionally? Yeah, well, I guess um, I'll you know we'll start as far back as we need to, which is that uh, so I'm 40. I graduated from art school out in the Midwest, uh, and then I moved out here. Worked at UNH with uh, managing their wood shop for their furniture program, as well as being a production potter for the first couple of years I lived out here, and then um, kind of realized that I was um, spending most of my time running and racing and adventuring. And uh, that was really kind of where I was deriving a lot of my joy and passion from. And and uh, so I, I, I pivoted kind of spontaneously, though actually the pivot was spontaneous. I quit my UNH job to start my own business, um, which is New England Resole. It was, it's a climbing shoe resole business. Um, we resole climbing shoes, only climbing shoes. Very specialty, but the climbing is so popular now that we're getting that business is great and everything's going well. Um, but back then, I was still working at the UNH or at UNH with uh, you know 401k and all the bennies and and very relaxed schedule, independent position, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I was out at the cliff one day, and just through the support of my friends, just kind of decided that uh, that that I needed to be true to my my passions, I guess mainly. Right. Can and I interrupt you for one second? I, sure. I, I only want to say that um, Rye is an entrepreneur, period. He had probably a <laughs> hundred different ideas while we were both working at UNH and we'd have lunch and hang out or go for runs. And they were just like, they'd just come and he'd sort of store them away. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it was inevitable that he would find one that was a best fit. <laughs> Yes. Well, and we're still working. That's that's the whole story of life, isn't it? Right. Finding the best fit. But uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I so I forget where I was going with that. But exactly. Except that uh, that business is going great now. And I started that was a transition for me, actually. So it took a couple of years to get it up and going full time. And I did some cabinetry and some other odd jobs. So again, back to the production pottery to make that work. Now I'm full time doing that. Uh, and um, I've got a kid. And that's been kind of the last two years of my life. It's taken me away from um, a lot of the adventuring and a lot of the racing. And then two years before that, I guess I would say maybe three to two years. So the last five years have been kind of really preoccupied with owning and starting a small business and then have owning and starting a small child. Uh, so luckily he's, well he's two now and um, he's, you know, able to do a lot of the things that he, we used to have to do for him on his own and it's getting only easier. And uh, the business is the same way, um, you know, uh, an employee or two and kind of pushing along and, and trying to get myself um, a little more freedom and just having systems more in place there. So hopefully, um, I'm very excited about some of the agendas items I have on the future as far as racing and, and adventuring is concerned. Um, but just real quick too, to end to kind of go further back into that. So when I realized when I was doing all that stuff, climbing's always been a passion, but then I also got into adventure racing and endurance racing quite heavily. 
and did a, a lot of that very extensively uh, for maybe five to 10 years and really had the opportunities to take advantage of a lot of unique uh, chances that kind of come along only once in a lifetime. I just have always been blessed enough to kind of be in the right spot at the right time and have uh, the energy and motivation to kind of make some stuff happen. Um, so yeah, we can get more into that if you want, or I can go into it, but that, that's where I'm at right now. And, uh, you know, and I guess we do a little bit of race directing too. Neither one of us <laughs> mentioned that, but. <laughs> well, well, I, you know, I, I, I didn't specifically focus on that because, uh, it's not your full-time gig. Uh, no. right? uh race directing is very much an avocation rather than a vocation. Mm -hmm. You guys do it because you love to do it. We'll talk more about the, the extra trail racing here in just a moment, but I wanted to ask you a quick follow-up question about your, yeah. about your climbing shoe, uh, business. So, um, outdoor recreation really boomed uh, during the pandemic. There were, I mean, there, there were any number of sectors um, that uh, took a beating, uh, you know, hospitality, you know, being one, um, but there are other industry sectors that really thrived during the pandemic. And uh, many of the outdoor uh, retailers uh, did pretty well as people had more time to spend outdoors and spent it outdoors. Um, as I'm sure you both uh, know, uh, the last two years, for instance, has been very difficult to buy a bike. There, you know, there's no, there's no inventory. Yeah. So if you wanted to get into cycling in the last two years, you were pretty much out of luck. There were no bikes to be had. And basically all outdoor recreational equipment was really hot. Um, did what, what did you see, Rye, over the last two years in terms of your, uh, in terms of your business? Did you notice any impact positively oh. or negatively um, from the yeah. pandemic? Yeah, well, there's a couple things to that. I mean, one, just on the pandemic schedule, I think there was like a first three to six months. I mean, maybe that's a little bit too long, but where everybody was understandably just locked up in their home, period. We weren't even going outside to, to, to kind of uh, recreate and stuff as much as maybe we would normally. And that, um, you know, I hear people say this and it, it always, I, I hate to say it because but it's true. We, I was kind of blessed by the, the COVID situation. It really independently worked out very well for us. It was a little bit scary because my wife was pregnant during the whole of uh, Florencia was pregnant during almost the whole, the start of it, you know, so maybe six months in and, and we actually, you know, when she gave birth, we were locked down in the hospital and everybody was wearing all the suits and I couldn't leave and all that sort of stuff. The good news is, is that those three months were the first three months that my um, child was was, you know, born. And so I essentially had kind of a, 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 a paternity leave, which, to be quite frankly, I don't know if I would have got otherwise um, just being a, a solo business owner. So in that regard, I, I feel so happy that I was able to spend those first three months with him uh, when otherwise I might not have been able to. Um, but and then secondly, on just a, a climbing level, yeah, certainly once people started going back outside, um, that it, it was a, I noticed that we got a large increase in the volume of business after it kind of died down. One of the bad things is that we get a lot of our business from gyms. We actually have pick up and drop off at a variety of the local New England gyms. And so those died down, but it was pretty much compensated by me being busy with my child. Um, the extra kind of joy of people being able to finally do the thing they loved. And so they sent in a lot of shoes. And then also I, we, I got it, took a, took a little help from the government too, and didn't mind doing so. 
Um, but then also just last thing as a business, I have a kind of a unique model in the repair business in that when people are, when times are tight, people turn to repair, you know, because they don't want to buy new shoes. Um, but when things are going good, you get people willing to spend that money and very active with the things that they love doing. And so we have plenty of volume there. So I've been very lucky to kind of have a business that wasn't too affected by the, you know, where I was affected was actually the, 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 um, sorry, the, uh, uh, shipping and the, the whole, uh, supply chain, excuse me. That's what I was looking for. The whole, so we had some supply chain issues, but they weren't even that bad. So I lucked out in all that, in all that regard. So that worked out very well for me. Um, I will, I'll provide, uh, links to, uh, both of your businesses, uh, on my, uh, Twitter page. <laughs> or or maybe right. maybe Rye is as busy as he as he needs and wants to be. But for anyone <laughs> for anyone that's that's interested in learning more about what uh, what what Sarah and Rye do, uh, I'll make sure to uh, to to provide <laughs> to provide yes. those links so they so uh, so the listener can check out uh, uh, more about uh, both of both of your businesses. Well, before we get into the extra trail race, I I, I do want you uh, both to tell the story, if you will, about um, about something you. You did collectively uh, back in the day. This was uh, shortly after. I think this was just about the time that you both became Acidotic Racing members. This was yep. 2007 and then 2008. You two uh, had a had a unique shared experience. Uh, in fact, an incredibly unique shared <laughs> experience uh, that I'd, I'd actually like uh, like you both to. Uh, uh, to, to collectively tell the story, Sarah, do you want to, you want to, you want to start what for the listener? What am I, what am I talking about? Uh, <laughs> what, what happened in 2007? What, what event um, did you guys participate in 2007? So what's interesting is it, it does sort of piggyback on the original part of the, the podcast here. So we joined acidotic racing, Rye and I continued to be really good friends working at the university, having relatively low key jobs, um, where when you're done for the day, you're done for the day. And we're like, what should we do every weekend? So, you know, <laughs> one day Rye started looking up random races. I mean, truly random. Has anyone ever heard of cheese rolling races in England? This These days, out. it's actually the cheese rolling is hit a height, I think. <laughs> I, I see that all over the place now. <laughs> So we didn't do cheese rolling because that wasn't close enough. We couldn't find one anywhere near us, but we could find wife carrying. The North American Wife Carrying Championships take place at Sunday River um, Resort in Bethel, Maine. And we were like, well, that's not that far. So we looked up the details and I, what, I think it was like, like three weeks until the first time we did it. It was like, it was really I close. I we do did remember not... <laughs> training. Do you remember training? I remember training the second year. The year? But the, okay, maybe the, that's what I... The first, first year, year, we like maybe practiced like two or three times. I remember that one being very spontaneous. Now, yeah. just for just for clarification, you two were not married. So, I mean, no. the, I mean, the, no. the event is called the North American Wife Carrying Championship, but you two weren't married. Uh, so, you, no. you didn't have to be married, right? I mean, obviously, that's... In, indeed, you do not. You only need to be a partnership... Typically, it's been a man carrying a woman. Um, although, since we've done it, I, I actually have seen various other partnerships of <laughs> large women carrying small women and also a large woman carrying a small man, if I recall. Perfect. Perfect. Um, but the, the basic premise is that you 
run for 278 yards or 235 meters in a loop where there are um, two hurdle obstacles and a water obstacle. <laughs> yeah, there was a small hill the year we did it too. They put up a, they put up a muddy hill. And one of the other rules, the only real kind of rule that I remember is that there was a there was a minimum weight limit for the the wife, quote unquote, uh, and that was more strictly enforced our second year. And then as we'll get along to uh, in nationals, or I mean, in, in worlds, worlds. That, was, that was more thoroughly enforced. OK. All right. So to so to just to just to set the scene for the for the listener, because I I actually my wife, Karen and I. We also competed in the North American Wife Carrying Championship, although not not nearly as successfully as the two of you. However, uh, I I do have some personal experience with it. But just to set the scene, uh, as Sarah as Sarah said, it 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 happens on at, during one of Sunny Rivers like Oktoberfest or some sort of festival weekend. So literally, Fest, there are yeah. hundreds of people at the resort. And this looped course literally is lined with with, you know, people, six, seven people deep, people, people on other people's shoulders watching this event. Now, uh, competitors, teams go off in pairs. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you're timed. Right. So it's not a mass start, but um, but your time then is logged. Okay. Yeah, and you do race. Uh, the, there are pairs of pairs. Just to clarify, you are racing against another uh, team of pairs another of set pairs. of partners, but That's that correct. only matters respective to your time. Correct. Like you're right. saying, yeah, yeah. It, exactly. Right. You're you're basically logging a time, and then you know that time then will be. Now, that first year in two thousand seven, um, were there preliminaries and finals, or was it just? Yes, there there were there were there were there mm -hmm. were there were finals. So you yep. So the top two times in the first round competing against each other in the final round. Okay, got it. Um, now, just one other bit of clarification. So this idea of carrying, um, <laughs> I, I'm thinking like I'm thinking like you know the, what's the most common way you carry somebody? You, you piggyback, right? But that's not actually how the top teams carried their partner it wasn't piggyback can you can, can you describe to the listener uh, uh, how yeah. sarah the, was carried the the preferred carry is the estonian carry is what it, uh, what it was called <laughs> i believe it's still called i I don't know. There was, I mean, if, you know, to, to digress again a little bit, that there's a history, a supposed mythologic mythology, I guess, associated with the wife carry that is, and excuse me, I'm not have this in front of me, but the, uh, some bandit and some Estonian bandit uh, was well known for carrying off wives from when they raided other, other villages. communities, villages. Yeah. And, and I don't, I, I guess, the, the carry goes all the way back to this original creator of the wife carry <laughs> in which the wife is stationed so that um, she's upside down with her thighs on the uh, the shoulders of the the gentleman in this case or the, the we'll just call it the the husband you know um, this the, the runner I guess would be a better way to put it uh, and then her 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 face is firmly planted in the tukus of the male or the the runner and then the um, in some cases, the the mainly what we saw, what you see most often is that then the 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 uh, holder on will 
wraps her arms or his arms around the waist of the runner. Um, but the per, even the more preferred way to do it is so that uh, the uh, holder is grabbing his or her legs behind the the uh, behind the legs or the knee in order to make kind of a meat backpack. Yeah, I, I just considered myself a human backpack. Yeah, basically, I'm going to I will for sure be posting some photos of this because <laughs> as much as much as you did a really great job, Rye, of describing that, I still think it's it's a visual uh, it's a visual oh, yeah. medium. Uh, yeah, and well, it, and you got to see yeah. so, something important to know about my history. So Rye explained that he, he at this time he was ultra running. So um, he had really strong legs and could could move him pretty quickly down any terrain. Um, I was a gymnast before I was a climber, so sort of small, compact, strong. So I think that's one of the, the reasons that we were so successful is between Rai's uh, lower body strength and my upper body strength, I was completely able to hold myself on. So Rai really didn't have to worry about me at all. So he could really use his arms to pump his body and, and move it forward. Okay. Yeah, the uh, yeah. There, yeah. there's definitely like the appearance might be that a majority of the work is being done by the the runner or the the person running, but honestly, I think that having no experience, but I'm just going to guess, and and I know that the amount of effort that that takes to care for the holder to kind of hold hers or himself onto the runner is quite extreme. And then the other thing that um, you maybe don't think of unless you see pictures or really are there is that once the you know, the, the head is upside down around the, the butt or waist area. The thing that we mentioned earlier is that whole water, uh, the water hazard. So you're, you're going over logs. Uh, there's two log hurdles, a hill and a water hazard. And, you know, obviously there's some danger going over the logs. Um, but then really the real issue is, is the water hazard. And almost every time there's a small submersion that requires uh, some, some breath holding. I think it, it was impossible to get away from that on both the national or the international course. So, Okay, so uh, perfect. Uh, that was expertly described. All right, yeah, so... No so go, go ahead, right. The, the one other thing I'll, I'll yeah. say, and we're obviously alluding this. So we, I, I think I could just break. We went to the international wife carry, but the thing to know about the national one that takes place at Sunday river is that it's actually very different and it has more of a, 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 a trail racing feel. So the hill was made out of wood chips and the, the water hazard was backhoed into a mud. Pit. It was essentially a mud pit. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a water hazard. It was a mud pit. And uh, whereas the the, the international uh, was actually done, I think, uh, partially on a track, like mm -hmm. a literal track. Mm -hmm. And then the water hazard, while considerably deeper, actually way deeper, way deeper was lined with a rubber uh, layer that that kept everything. It was very clean. You could see the bottom of it. There was no sanitation issues, <laughs> though the rubber did make it a little slick to get out of combined with the, the angle and the depth of the water hazard. So. Okay. So two, so 2007, the first year you, yeah. you two qualify for the finals. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. And <laughs> what, so what happens in the finals, right? Cause still that's better. a really interesting, that's I'm a really interesting story. Okay. What so, happened in the finals? So the really interesting story is that we're racing against an actual couple who were dating and they were from Northeastern College. And it's like this gigantic guy from Northeastern College and this little tiny college girl. Um, and we are racing them in the finals and we go through the mud pit and Rye is ahead. 
he comes out ahead of the other guy, but his legs are like, I don't know, six feet long as far as I'm concerned. Um, and right at the last second meets up with us at the finish line and it's a photo finish. Yeah, did we mention this is outside at Sunday River and there is no photo finish? (laughs) And so, honestly, I think because before we ran the final race, they got a little bit of our story. Like each team's, like the finalist teams, they got our story. And I honestly think they liked that story better. Ryan and I were just two two, friends in our 20s, like... Now I'm really bitter. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, I, like, we really contend that, that we came in one step ahead, but you can't, you know. So if I can just add a a few uh, (laughs) details for, 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 you know, to expand the image, the, the couple, the, one of the things that I I really like those guys, they, uh, they spontaneously ran it because they're also during this event, I don't know what they do now, but they were running a mountain bike race. And so uh, this guy in a mountain bike race on a, on a ski course, right? So we're not talking like cross country, we're talking hills and stuff. And I'm kind of known as one of you know, a lot of guys are, especially in the kind of uh, ultra community having giant thighs, right? This guy's thighs were like, I, when you feel like you've got giant thighs and then you look at a person and you're like, oh my God, you're like, oh wow, those are giant thighs. So, and of course in his biker spandex and his bib, you know, his bib. And then his dainty, dainty, dainty uh, partner. But, uh, and so, you know, it was kind of, and we were the two competitive groups that time. I mean, as you can imagine, um, I've always had a theme where I kind of like being, um, one of the ways I kind of pad my resume is by doing races where there's a, a, a small margin of, of actual competitors, right? So there's like maybe five teams competing three of them are competing with like a joke in mind. They're really giving it their all, but they they know they're not going to get very far. And then there were the two of us, right? The two teams that we were doing. And just to go back to that photo finish thing too, uh, the reason we feel bitter and is because we actually, we had, I forget how we'd gotten, we watched somebody's kids, I think, while they were racing. And so they took an interest in our race because we formed a little friendship quickly. And they uh, videoed us on their phones coming through the finish line. And we like, we went over to the judges with their phone video, like, no, don't you see? Don't you see? We're, we're, but even on the phone, I will admit that it was, it was like, you know, it was like, it was still a little questionable, but I, I don't think it was so questionable that we shouldn't have gotten the, the well. According there. according to the newspaper articles of the day, uh, the two of you lost by a scant three hundredths of a second. A second, that's, yeah. That's 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 <laughs> yeah. how the newspapers. Well, and well, you ha- you have to note that one of the most re- the one of the reasons we we're most upset about this is that the winning team gets the woman's weight in beer. <laughs> <laughs> you sit on a giant scale. I, think, I thought we got that too. Only the second. No, that was only, only the, the second, second year. year? Oh, yeah. Okay. I so, thought the first place got women's weight in beer and a check, and we just got women's weight in beer. No, All we right. didn't. We didn't get beer until the next year. So well, next year, yeah. So fast. So fast forward, two thousand eight. You guys go back. Yeah, we couldn't right. not for, go back for redemption. For redemption. Yeah. <laughs> couldn't yeah. not go back. So we actually trained, um, which was hilarious. We were living um, with some other friends, but in the same house, and we'd like train in the Exeter forest where the yeah. Exeter trail race would That's soon right. be 
Um, and that's and where it, we did our training for the wife, Carrie, um, and up the hill, like from the forest oh, to the house great. we were living in, um, which was, you know, pretty good. Um, yeah, we but, found <laughs> an old rotten log to go over and stuff. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, train is in quotation marks, too. It was <laughs> yeah. like five minutes of going over a hill before I was like, ho, oh, oh, ho, and okay. then we were done. But it's yeah. okay. I'm actually, I'm actually picturing, uh, I'm sort of imagining there's a like there's a, like a rocky theme being played in the background is <laughs> that you're carrying uh, Sarah over these these rotten yeah. logs and running Except up these hills. Except just the highlights that you see on the rocky, <laughs> on that, that, like those cuts, that was it. That was all of our training, right? There was no like... There was no implied extra training behind it. All right, that. so you go back in 2008 and you win. Well, and here's the win. thing is we actually invited our friend and racing buddy, Austin Stonebreaker, Austin, to come with earlier, us. Actually, yep. And our other friend, Carrie, who's no yeah. longer with us, um, she uh, and Austin made a team together and they got the second fastest time in the prelims. So yeah. we raced against really close friends Very in the cool. finals. Yeah. Cool. And I mean, we won it fair and square, but I will give him, I still feel bad there. We, he was, it came down to why I, I got to admit the guy was faster than I thought he was going to be. Uh, and, <laughs> and I felt, you know, kind of empowered having done really well the year before I was like, we got this. And he went out and he started getting ahead. And I was like, Whoa, yeah. uh, we got to the water and I was like, I was paranoid when you could, you can see the line. It's not a very long race. And I'm like, we're going to lose. We're going to lose to Austin. We brought him up to do the Like this is our, he's not supposed to win. And he went into the, he went into the mud hazard and this is where experience, you know, just plays the game. I knew exactly what, what was coming ahead. And, uh, as he was coming out, he slipped. Yeah. And I don't know whether it, whether it caused it or not, but I had to give him a little tap to like kind of, <laughs> to keep from slipping and going down myself. And, uh, and that was, that was it. That was all it took. Just that little kind of tap on the shoulder and a slip from him. And, uh, we were, we were golden and we, we uh, could barely fit all of the Bud Light in the back of the hatchback. Right. So it's to Sarah's earlier point, there's a, there's a teeter totter and Sarah sits on one side of the teeter totter and they start stacking up beer. Of course it's, it's Bud Light. So it's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's somewhat, suspect but either way they're they're stacking up they're stacking up uh cases of Bud yeah. light until the teeter-totter is balanced out and that's the beer that you win um you also won x number of dollars per i actually dollar. have the big I was I'm like, more, it's on the wall in right yeah shop. that's what okay. i went to look at i forgot to look at the i looked at the year earlier but i forgot to look at the price i still have it i mean the thing that i love first off just real quick the beer was beautiful because they wanted to advertise what the winnings were. So they, they had the teeter totter out there and then they had a big pyramid of cases of Bud Light just baking in the it afternoon sun. sun. Like from the from the first thing they did to set up was pile the beer, right? So uh so yeah. It, and then I still think that the thing that I take home the most, because I was privileged enough that to come like actually have it. I don't know why I ended up with it, but I have I've got a big giant check like you see on TV when people yeah. win the win the uh, publisher's clearinghouse or whatever lotto or whatever. And I think it was like two, I think it's two times my weight in money. Makes sense. Mm, yes, makes that sense. would make sense. Makes yeah. sense. Um, and then and then you guys went off to Worlds and uh, you didn't win the World Championships, but you got a trip to Finland. We did. We, we did. went to Sankajärve, Finland. Sankajärve. 
Sankayarve, Finland. And what was amazing about the trip was that on Friday night, it was a cultural event. Um, so we ate dinner like in a tent, like in like, oh, and people right. wore costumes like back, like at the day, <laughs> like yeah. when the wife carrying off sort of originated the original and they told the original culture story. That's right. Yeah. Um, and there were, that. there were people from all over the world. Um, and we made friends with some of the, the folks from England were super fun. I'm still Facebook friends with the woman we met from Sanka Yarve, yeah. um, who just like did it for fun with, with like her partner of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and we learned a little bit about Finnish culture. And the craziest thing that we learned is that the Finns never sleep in the summer because there's so much light. And so we were all staying up until some ungodly hour like midnight and then waking up at four in the morning because the birds were just like burr, burr, burr. and it was light pretty much the entire time we were there and so i don't even know really how rye ran because we were exhausted yeah i'll say that there were a lot of things that were really special about that trip obviously you go to europe and that you know the history there is so much deeper than it is here and and that comes through in these kind of cultural events, but you're also seeing castles and stuff. And of course we took the time to, I think we did a week leading up to the race. I don't quite remember, but we spent some other time in Finland really enjoying it. And it's, it's just a wonderful culture and a wonderful place, a wonderful um, country. I would highly recommend it. Um, but I would say too, one of the things to, to more to Sarah's point, it was really eye opening to me as kind of an, and what I considered myself at the time an athlete, I certainly wasn't kind of at the peak of what my training and, and getting into, you know, trying to maximize my gains, as they would say. Um, but I was, you know, fit and young and 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 kind of jazzed about how physically I was doing in these races and stuff. And to go internationally and just experience what it is to do an international race versus a, na a local race, even if it's something you can camp out before the travel, the, the need and kind of desire to want to experience the culture, which means, you know, staying up late, like Sarah <laughs> mentions and partying and they have shit beer there, but they do drink a lot. And uh, they have you know, great so cider. They do. That's they <laughs> was, were on the cider was, like, train. super psyched. <laughs> yeah. But so my performance was not, I mean, I definitely remember being kind of strung out from travel, strung out from being up because when you're tenting and it's light 24 hours in a day, it is hard to get to sleep. And then also just like, yeah, that the night before and all that sort of stuff. And just the, just even the, the um, kind of anxiety of dealing with a uh, more international and kind of legitimate thing, even though like legitimate was, was hard to say, but we took the bus there for instance. And that yeah. whole thing was like just kind of eye opening and, and just anxiety inducing, not in a real bad way, just in that kind of mild, constant anxiety that travel to new places always has. And so as an athlete, I would say that that was really uh, looking back. One of the, the things that I take away the most, aside from all the cultural stuff. Yeah. You know, Prelims were also the day before. Yeah. So like we raced, Rye actually ran two days in a row rather than, which is actually harder, I think, than doing two burns, like, 10, yeah. 20 minutes apart. Um, then there, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and the other interesting thing is that that water element was a lot deeper and I actually had to change my strategy because I couldn't hold my yeah. breath um, the entire distance across it, which definitely slowed Rye down coming out. And there, there was actually a different, another um, difference. So the, the course was 
notably different. And I mean, in the sense there was no hill obstacle, there was the water obstacle, which was much deeper and steeper and covered with plastic. And then they also, the, the telephone poles that they were using um, for, a, for a hurdle, if you will, were much shorter to the ground. And so what that meant is that in the nationals in uh, the U.S., almost exclusively, I mean, there were a few people who would, who would jump. So you would kind of like push one leg up. So one leg hops on the hurdle, stand up on it, and then kind of vault yourself over versus the kind of more traditional way here at, at the New England one, which was to kind of slide your butt over, hop one leg over, and then slide on your butt and kind of scoot yourself over as fast as you can. And they were more like uh, the, the hurdles in Finland were more like knee height. And so it was pretty much mandatory that if you were going to be competitive, you had to jump over these things, which is just a whole different um, <laughs> physicality. Also, interestingly, now that I'm thinking, too, they uh, there were you know, they were touting the last year's champions that were like six time winners of the international wife carry and stuff. And then, you know, the, the competition was just stiff. It was stiffer. It was just much, it was like real competition. Uh, and so, so that was, was a little bit, uh, I think having that level of competition and then also not feeling at your top, um, kind of really work off of one another to not necessarily produce the best results. Uh, that being said, I, I wasn't too bad. I think we were like we, maybe we, first we came US in, team. Yeah, we came in sixth out of um, all the competitors, which I was trying to remember if it was like 30 or 40. Yeah, there were a bunch. Um, we were definitely the first U.S. team. And actually, we were the first team that wasn't Finland or Estonian. Yeah. So, um, so pretty good. Well, you know, and we actually, in, in the race, we went head to head against the, That's right, the undefeated champions. champion. Yeah. And that, uh, he took, I mean, he was, there was no way I wasn't, I wasn't holding <laughs> tight with that guy, but I did for a little, you know, I did for a minute or whatever, 30 seconds. Yeah, just, uh, so, I, but yeah, I, I just think, I, I just think it's such a, it's such a great story, such an amazing experience, such an interesting shared experience. Uh, from the two of you. Um, so you two, you two do still work collaboratively um, in your uh, in your race directing with the Exeter Trail Race. Let's talk a little bit, a little bit about that. Um, I was actually looking it up. Um, the first Exeter Trail Race was June 7th, 2009. Um, uh, because oh, Lord, we yeah. needed to raise money to go to the World Wife Carrying Championships. Oh, thank you. Thank, that's, <laughs> that was the, yep, that was a transition I was looking for, Sarah. Jeez, thank you. We, <laughs> I should have done more. I should have done more pre-show work. Yes. There, so thank you. Yes. Make that connection, please, between the, between the world wife carrying championships and the first extra trail race. Thank you. Well, we more. tried to find some sponsors and we did get one Tiva um, or Teva, however you choose to pronounce it, I suppose, um, sponsored us and Ryan and I both got shoes um, that we could run in. Um, not that I needed shoes cause I was being carried. Um, but that was the sponsor of our first trail race, which we decided to host because collectively we didn't think we had enough money to just like take out of pocket and go to Finland. So we needed to do something that jived with our own, um, kind of ethics around, uh, adventure and sport and racing. Um, and a trail race seemed like a perfect fit. And we were living in Exeter at the time. 
Um, so we started down that path to figure out, can we host a race in Exeter? Um, and we got in contact with the Conservation Commission who put us directly also in contact with the natural resources uh, manager for Exeter, who is still there and still a wonderful partner for us. And um, Kristen Murphy has just been um, there for us every year that we've run this way, race um, and gone to bat for us. When because Conservation Commission commissioners change um, quite frequently, uh, and so she's just kind of been our common thread to ensure that our race is kind of always accepted and making sure we're up to date on whatever paperwork has changed or whatever requirements have changed. Um, so that's part of what may, has made our race be successful and continue um, to go forward. In that first year, we um, we actually did a small, if I recall, a small like wife carry race afterwards uh, mm -hmm. informally, I think. I don't think we had any prizes or anything. That's right. But That's right. Yeah. Um, so you you both had run those trails so you were you were familiar with 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 the trail network right so when this idea came about hey let's put on a trail race you you probably started to think uh well this would be you know this this is where we would go um i believe that first year we we had two distances right yeah, from, I the think from the start yep yeah the, the yep. short course and and the longer course the idea being a shorter course that's a little less intimidating perhaps for for new trail runners uh although although not easy short yeah. doesn't necessarily mean easy and then a longer course um that uh, that might appeal to uh either a more adventurous uh, newbie uh, or uh, a more seasoned uh, trail runner. Yeah, at um, the time, the, at the time, Chris, the longest race I personally had ever run was uh, 10k. Um, I had just started my trail racing, um, and so it definitely like I was like, okay, I can run, I can run four and a half miles in Exeter. Like most trail racers should be able to do that. <laughs> well, I think, and, and and I think those two distances really are the perfect two distances because um, again, four four and a half miles is not so long that it's terribly intimidating for, 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 for newcomers, uh, and 10 miles, particularly 10, that 10 mile course is a challenge for just about anyone, right? Because oftentimes the, you know, the shorter the race, the harder you got to run it. I mean, Absolutely. if it's an ultra and you're going to be out there for, you know, 20 hours, you can kind of shuffle along. If it's a 10 mile race, you, you got to kind of put the pedal to the metal and having actually run the race myself, um, the 10 mile course is not easy, uh, a, a, a really a significant challenge. Um, it, either one of you, it, can you talk a little bit about the property that the, uh, that the race is held on? The, um, actually, there's two properties, right? The Henderson Swayze Town Forest, which is, actually, which is in Exeter, and then the Oakland's Town Forest, which is in Newfields, separated by Route 101. Um, yep. can, yeah, can, can either one of you talk a little bit about uh, those two properties? What, uh, yeah, what, 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 can the, what, can the, what can the racer expect, uh, or what do you know about those two properties? Well, when you were talking about, um, you know, what kind of why we were putting the race on, I think the larger question is why we put it on the second year, because the first year, <laughs> you know, we, we, we needed the money, so to speak. Um, but then the second year, you know, we just had, A, it was an enjoyable event, you know, and uh, at that point we were racing so much that, uh, that it was kind of fun to be on the other end of the, the, the spectrum and, and give back a little bit as, as weird as that feels. I mean, you know, you're making kind of a profit, I guess, but it's never about that as any kind of small, small course race director can tell you. 
Um, but the trails there are just so good. And as uh, Sarah mentioned, we were living literally abutting the trails and, and I was training and Sarah was even, it was Sarah was training too. And so we were both back there on those trails all the time. And it was as much the second year an idea. I mean, certainly, you know, you're excited to get a little more, an extra, you know, little bill in your, your wallet, so to speak. But it was really just about sharing the trails. Um, they are... I think they're less unique than they used to be as trail building and especially mountain biking has gotten more popular and kind of codified, if you will. Um, but they started out, I mean, I'm sure they started out as just hiking, walking trails, but were very, very soon adopted by the mountain bike network or mountain biking community, especially NIMBA, Northeastern Mountain Biking Association, I think. Um and there'd even been a couple of mountain bike races on those trails prior to us doing it. I don't think they do that anymore just due to the kind of wear and tear on the trails. Um, but because they're mountain, and I think, you know, it's this kind of hand in hand thing that um, they were trails that appealed to mountain bikers. And then mountain bikers came in and started kind of adding their own unique flavor. And what that means in this particular case, in a lot of cases, is just a lot of twisty, turny, fun to ride stuff that really translates well in stuff that's very fun to run. The course is very, and the trails in general are very technical. Um, you know how it is with mountain bikes, as much as I love them, they tend to wash out a lot of the trails and especially we could, don't need to get onto the leaf blowing controversy but a lot of times those trails especially back then were leaf blown and so there's not a lot of litter to to, to make new dirt um so anyway that you know on the one hand makes them very hard and challenging but on the other hand makes them a lot of fun as you've got to kind of dance between the rocks and roots and you know the the turns and twists are a lot of fun and then on top of that there are a lot of short hills that are just you know just kind of enough and they're short but steep so they're enough that when you're running full threshold like you need to be on a 10 mile race they really burn the legs especially <laughs> as there are a lot of them um but the none of the there's not a hill on there perhaps that you're like oh my god is this ever gonna end you know and then you throw in some really sweet uh buff pine needle buff single track that's still soft and still super flat and runnable you throw in a couple really cool wood bridges that have been built, you know, <laughs> makeshift and kind of go all over the place and through some cool bogs and, and over some a little beaver ponds and stuff. And uh, along with I really appreciate there's this little section uh, that comes out in the open where they've cut a power line and they've, mm. they've got some trails on the power line. So, you know, you kind of um, go are in the woods for a lot of the time, but then you break out into these different kind of environments. And uh, also, as you alluded to, Chris, the short side, the 4.6 is on one side of the highway, 101, and you have to go through this large tunnel um, culvert to kind of get to the other side, the, the six mile addition that makes up the total 10 mile trail. And that's kind of unique, too. So you've got all these kind of fun. Uh, and then one other thing I'll just mention, there's this cool, I appreciate the camel humps. It's kind of like a whoop-de-whoop -whoop that comes down a steep hill with a couple rises on it that's uh, unique to the course that's a lot a lot of fun to run. So all in all, they're just, they're just awesome trails. They're just amazing trails. Um, these days, uh, they've gotten maybe a little too popular for their own good, and there's a lot more trails than they used to be, which as a race director can be a problem because you've got to cross those trails out and flag and make sure people don't get lost, which... 
inevitably we've got one person every year. It just is, that's the way it works. But, um, but on the other hand, you know, it's nice to have new trails coming in because they're fresh and you've got the extra network and uh, the CONCOM committee who we've worked with a bunch, I think is pretty much on top of trying to um, manage the, any sort of damage that would be there you know, occurring and stuff. So, so, so all Rye, in all yeah, awesome yeah, stuff. Yeah. You and Rai, you're, you're the one that's, uh, that, that sets the course, Sarah, I'm, I want to talk about, uh, sort of the race day experience in just a moment outside of the course, but, but, uh, um, let me pick up on, on what Rai was just talking about as he was talking about the course, um, for the participant Rai, uh, what, what can they expect in terms of course marking? Obviously, we're, you know, th this is, this information is going to be shared with, with participants in a pre-race email and, and the morning of, but just, just yeah, how, do you, how do you mark, how do you mark the Exeter, the Exeter <sighs> course? Extensively would be the answer. Uh, again, there's so many trails that cross over that these days, uh, after you know a couple of years, it, we just I just decided that the way to do it is we mark every intersection, and if there's an opportunity to to get uh, uh, on the wrong trail, I literally take a piece of uh, map or tape, you know, the the flagging. flagging. Thank you, and just go over. We bar off that trail. Um, and then we also do white arrows that are uh, with a temporary marking paint on the ground at each intersection. And then on top of that, we do a few confidence markers, uh, you know, maybe four or five coming out of any intersection along with arrows. And then those markers get more um, uh, spaced out at, in between as you go farther in between intersections, but we still mark them with uh, flagging hanging from tree branches um on the actual trails themselves so that even because sometimes you'll be running along and you'll be like am i am i on the right trail and that self-doubt is no fun when you're trying to run as fast as you can and be mm. competitive so as much as possible i try and uh i try and take uh everything into consideration but arrows on the ground flagging crossing any other trails and then flagging hanging from the trees is the way mm. we mark the course yeah i think you know as um i mean for me now, uh, I only mark one course. Uh, I mean, I'm involved. I'm involved in all of the races that we, we that we that, that the Acidotic Racing host. Um, but there's actually one that I mark myself, and that's the Kingman Farm Trail Race. And so, what I have found um, in terms of course marking is that um, inevitably, when people get off course, um, it's either because they are uh, not navigating the course independently. In other words, right. they're following along. Um, and you know, one person, the person ahead of them that they're following, you know, then secondly was not listening to the pre-race instructions <laughs> and that person gets off course and then pulls one or more people off course. And the other thing in my experience is that, you know, you can, you can, you can put out a million course markings and, uh, you're still going to have somebody get off course because it's trail racing. Um, yeah. and, um, you know. A big part of trail racing is navigating through the course. It's not, you have to be aware and you also have to listen to the race director's pre-race instructions about certain particularities and peculiarities about how the course, the course is marked. In terms of aid stations, Rye, while I have you um, talking about the course, um, uh, are there aid stations? Uh, if so, approximately, where are they from a distant standpoint? Do you know that? And then- uh, I I got what? it. I got All it. All right. Sarah's got it. And then what, what will be, uh, what can people expect to have at the aid stations? So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, the, 
short, there's the short course and the long course, as Rai mentioned. And the short course stays entirely on um, the south side of 101. So um, those racers, those short course racers are going to run three and a half miles um, and then hit up that uh, water stop um, a mile before the finish. So it's kind of just like you can get through there, get that last sip of water and then head that last mile speedily home, um, which is kind of a great marker for those short course people because then you only have that last mile to go. Um, there is uh, also um, <clears throat> the that that same water stop is a water is the second water stop for our 10 mile racers. Um, and so that water stop when they come through will also have Gatorade um, available. So yeah, they, they uh, the, the runners come through and then they come down and they have the choice to go under the bridge under the tunnel or not for the for the highway and that's where that first aid station is. And so yeah, the, the four milers, that's their aid station. And then the um, the 10 milers take a left and run under the tunnel. I think it's a left this year, but they run a, it's a right apparently. They don't run it. The 10 milers run under the tunnel. Yes. But yeah. that's not what the aid station is. It's on this side of the tunnel. Yeah, the aid station is at the near the train trestle at the corner of the gas line. We don't have one at the tunnel anymore. Mm -hmm. Oh, the well, challenge. My fault. The challenge, of course, and and uh, and I'm not I'm not intentionally putting you on the spot, but the, the challenge, <laughs> of course, is that um, you, you got we haven't hosted this race in a couple of years. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we that we is. actually just changed the aid station like the last year. I know you're right, Sarah. I'm sorry. We were having some trouble getting. We decided that 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 was too close. The way the aid station was at the tunnel was a little too close, so we adjusted it for the four milers back. Yeah, and actually, I misspoke as well. Um, I've I've now found the map. I have located my map. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, and, um, and and again, this is a big part of this is just not having hosted the event in a couple of years because yeah. of the pandemic. So, yes, Sarah, please to clarify. All right, to clarify, <laughs> um, the uh, racers will all head out together. Um, for the first mile and change. Um, the 10 milers will then go through the tunnel to the north side and at three and a half miles, they will meet their first aid station. Um, it's up uh, where the trail crosses in a little neighborhood. So they like come out onto a, a street and then immediately can stop there, get their um, water um, or Gatorade. And then they will be headed around the loop back towards the south side. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, the short course racers, um, actually are only running two miles before their aid station. Um, and so they will have two and a half more miles back, um, after, uh, that aid station. Um, there is water available at both those aid stations, um, but Gatorade is only available for those 10, 10 milers out on that really long, long, hot course. Um, and then the 10 milers do come through that uh, four mile aid station, which is about at seven and a half miles on their trip. Um, so 10 milers have a three and a half mile aid station and a seven and a half mile aid station. The four milers only have an aid station at two miles. Got it. Okay. Got 
Got it. <clears throat> um, there's also, just as a side note, first aid supplies and ice for twisted ankles at those locations. Got it. And just, uh, just for clarification, um, when, when you say start off together, the, the, the two races are actually, the starts are staggered. Uh, participants eventually race in the same, start in the same direction. <laughs> Um, but the, but the two course, the two races are separated, uh, by, uh, by 20 minutes, right? So the yeah. long course starts at 10 and then the short course starts at 10 20. Um, I say that mostly because I'm timing the event this year and that's, <laughs> what, that's how I'm setting up the, the, the timing system. Uh, well, and we, we did, that's also a uh, relatively recent change. We did have everybody go out all at the same time for a while, but now we've staggered those starts. Yeah. Cause it was just, we've, when you know, one of the challenges, as I've alluded to, is the trails change a lot uh, over the course of the years. And and one of the developments that we had to deal with was a major industrial kind of development going in at our start place. And so the start line got a little or the entry into the woods got significantly narrower. And so we were just getting too much congestion and we had to uh, break those up. But, yeah, that's right. Um, I, I do remember that. Um, Sarah, um can you talk a little bit, a little bit about, um, registration? Um, where, um, where can people, where can people register, uh, early pre-registration and then, um, is there day of event registration? Can you, can you talk about where people, where people find the event and how do they register? Yep. So online registration, um, is available until the 16th. So two days before the race. Um, on RUDREG, which you can get to through uh, that way or from the Astrodotic Racing website. Um, which we would recommend. Yeah, because <laughs> um, then, then you can find a little bit uh, better uh, information on the trail race. Our map is included on our Exeter Trail Race page from the Astrodotic Racing website. Right. Right. Um, and then uh, day of registration uh, starts at 8.30 uh, at Six Commerce Way in Exeter. The Northeast Lantern Factory has been generous over these years of letting us use their parking lot um, for parking as well as registration and refreshments and setting up our porter potties and letting us use their water. Um, they've always been very generous um, and helped us in whatever way that we uh, need in preparation for the race. Mm. Um, so then it'll be standard uh, on-site pre-reg day of registration split into your two uh, groups and uh, pretty straightforward. Mm. Um, how is, uh, how's pre-registration looking? I, I know, I know just generally uh, races are down in terms of participation uh, so far year to date. Um, the road racing scene has seen a significant drop off in participation. Um, what, what, how does pre-registration look uh, right now about like you described it it's uh you know honestly like this is when we will start to get um the majority of our you know it always picks up in the last four days people want to see what the weather's like and all that good stuff um it, but we're below the last couple years i mean certainly um advertising isn't something that we really do a ton of um but even then uh we tend to get pretty good numbers and uh we're i would say maybe uh, 40, well, 30% behind what we would normally be right now. Yeah. I, I think that's a, I, that's a common, uh, that, that, that's a common experience. Um, I've actually heard that from a number of race directors 
Um, and there may be any number of influences um, that are that are driving that. But the good news is that, uh, as you pointed out, Rye, even for people that are going to wait last minute uh, to see what the weather looks like, and to Sarah's point too, uh, there is there is day of event registration. Um, uh, the last thing, uh, if you could talk about, um, is the so every acidotic racing event benefits a nonprofit. Um, either either in part or in whole, most commonly in part. Um, but giving back to, to our communities and, and supporting charities is a, is a pillar of, of, of the acidotic racing brand and our organization. Um, who does this race? Uh, who does, who, who's the nonprofit or what's the nonprofit for this event? Um, we made a decision uh, pretty much after that first race that, we really felt like our our race couldn't happen without the support of the Exeter Conservation Commission. Um, and they not only manage the trails, um, but they work with the, the public in putting out maps and making sure the trails are safe and making sure that um, trails that aren't supposed to be there are closed off and uh, notifying people about logging operations. They do a great job of managing the trails for their community. Um, so we give uh, back directly to the the group that manages the trails. Um, and we've always felt really good about that. And uh, we actually, I sat on the kind of the Conservation Commission Trails Committee when I did live in Exeter as another way to support that work. Um, and Rye over the years has done um, a number of trail work projects for them, uh, again, to to give back in that way. So we tried uh, monetarily as well as in service. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think for you guys, uh, it, this race is really a brilliant way to cover actually all three of our, our of our pillars, um, uh, community, competition, and charity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because uh, uh, through this organized race, um, you benefit a local nonprofit. Uh, so that I mean that money stays in the Exeter community, um, which which I think I think is just I, I think is brilliant. Um, well, um, I, I've really appreciated this and enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> I know the two of you have a lot of stories uh, individually and collectively, and so I actually feel like we could we could we could actually have a, an entirely uh, different <laughs> show just on your own uh, personal. Uh, uh, individual and collective race experiences, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep it there for now. Um, as, as, as you, as you both pointed out, uh, or as Sarah pointed out, uh, for folks that are looking for more information about the Exeter trail race, they can visit acidoticracing.com. Um, there, um, uh, if you search under competition, you'll find the Exeter trail race page. Uh, and again, to Sarah's point, there is a link to online registration on that page. Um, so we, uh, we are looking forward to, uh, getting trail racing back, uh, to Exeter, um, here on, uh, on, on June 18th. And, um, I'm looking forward to actually seeing you two in person for the first time. Yeah, it's been a while. You know, so I, I look forward to that. Um, Sarah and Rai, thank you. Thank you very much for being on the show. Absolutely. Our pleasure. My yeah, pleasure. Thanks, thanks for having us. It's funny, it's funny that I had forgotten about the connection between the North American Wife Carrying Championship and the Exeter Trail Race. Luckily, Sarah hadn't forgotten. That, that's a pretty funny story. 
And my wife, Karen, and I were there the day that they won uh, Sarah's weight in beer. I can still picture her on that teeter-totter, perfectly balanced with several cases of Bud Light on the other side. Well, if you liked what you heard, please consider giving the show a follow. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn, so make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.